Hello, everyone. Welcome to B-Sides. It's been a long time since I've done one of these, and I think I'm going to try to resume these again in the future. If you've never listened to a B-Side podcast before, this is basically where I give extra reflections and things during the week, sometimes expanding from the sermon, usually doing that, and sometimes other information. Think of it as a deeper dive and things that maybe I wanted to share, but, you know, try to keep my sermon under two hours. So this is where some of those fit in. Um, at the moment, you may hear a soundtrack behind me, my kids are watching Incredibles, so maybe this is producing a nice soundtrack behind me. But if you hear any noise, that's what it is. I'm doing what I can with what I have. Alright, so uh, we on Sunday looked at blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the context of that word mourn throughout scripture is used in a sense of repentance for one's sin. So traditionally, this beatitude has been interpreted to be a mourning one's sin, the things that we have done against God and the sin and destruction from sin that we see in the world around us and in those around us. So the beatitude is not saying that you are in a blessed state when you are sad. It's saying you have found a blessed state when you mourn your sin. When you realize what it really is, you're disgusted with it, and you desire Christ above all things. Repentance is simply the turning of our minds and hearts. So we turn from our sin to Christ. And this is something that becomes a virtue within us, this morning sin, because we need to turn to Christ on a regular basis, or else the ways of the world uh, co-opt, uh, 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 take over our thinking and the way we see things. So we must keep turning to Christ. Um, so I'm not going to rehash the whole message, but what I am going to do is I'm going to share from you a plethora of of writings, because I think this is one that we are not very good at experiencing, the, the mourning of our sin. Um, we typically like to emphasize the joyfulness of Christianity, the happiness of it, and the just feel better about yourself. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, it's an imbalanced approach to our faith. For we discover in Scripture and through Christ that we find deeper joy when we recognize sin for what it is. This isn't something to stuff away or shove in a closet and say, well, I'll never be perfect, I'm good enough, and Christ has given me grace. All that's true, but we also want to confront this sin and we want to heal. We want to grow. So, um, I think that we haven't, most of us in our Christian lives haven't had a lot of experience with the morning of sin. So I wanted to read to you a prayer, uh, one of the Orthodox prayers that, um, are, uh, prayed before receiving Holy Communion. Um, then I want to read to you, um, what John of Kronstadt, he was a priest in Russia who saw some extraordinary revival and a lot of miracles were done through his life, uh, what he says we should weep for. Then I want to go to another Russian author, uh, maybe you've heard of 
Fyodor Dostoevsky. He's known f- mostly for his um, literary classic Crime and Punishment, uh, but I'm going to be reading from his most famous, actually, what most people consider this one of the greatest books ever written, and that's The Brothers Karamazov. It is a challenging concept in that. And then I want to read uh, a few quotes from a bunch of, um, of the older Christians and what they have said about weeping and mourning. So, to begin, here is a portion of a communion prayer uh, from an Orthodox prayer book. And, uh, of course, the point of this is to notice the uh, prayer here about weeping and tears So, it prays, I have sinned more than the harlot who, on learning where you were lodging, bought myrrh and dared to come and anoint your feet, O Christ, my Lord and my God. You did not repel her when she drew near in her heart, so neither reject me, O word, but grant that I may clasp and kiss your feet, and dare to anoint them with a flood of tears, as with precious myrrh. Wash me with my tears, and purify me with them, O word. Forgive my sins, and grant me pardon. You know the multitude of my evil deeds. You also know my wounds, and you see my bruises. You also know my faith. And you behold my willingness, and you hear my sighs. Nothing escapes you, my God, my Maker, and my Redeemer. Not even a teardrop, nor part of a drop. Your eyes know what I have not achieved, and in your book things not yet done are written by you. And so here, this prayer talks, compares us with the sinfulness of the harlot who came to anoint Jesus' feet with myrrh. But here, we are like into that sinner, but coming with our tears, and our tears are the myrrh. So we come before him, and that is, that is our offering to him, is our mourning our sin, our feeling devastated by it, and wanting him above all else, and him to cure us from this way of death, so that we can participate in his nature and be one with him. And then the middle part of the prayer said, wash me with my tears and purify me with them. I do not think that we need, because the Bible nowhere says that you must cry actual tears to be cleansed. Obviously, that's not what has to happen, but the tears, whether they be sincerely felt in the heart or actually rolling down your cheeks, it is this actual feeling rent by our sins and just completely in utter hatred of them before God. This is what heals us. How how many times have we confessed a sin only to find ourselves going back to it again? It's because while we want to change, we haven't quite gotten to a point of actually despising the sin. And that's what this blessed, joyful mourning does. And when we can actually be opened up like that, that's when mercy comes in and heals us. And this is why mourning is blessed, and why it leads us to joy, and why it leads us to comfort. This is true healing, and this is what we're after. So, um... What do we mourn? Um, sometimes 
Um, well, there's a lot of things we can mourn. And so I want to read to you part of uh, St. John of Kronstadt's sermon on this beatitude. And um, I just wanted you to hear it in his words. So he says, What then ought we to weep over? First of all, weep because through your sins you have defiled and continue to defile the image of God in you. So every time I sin, the presence of God in me is defiled and and people cannot see it and I am not growing up into his likeness. So weep, brothers and sisters, over that. We were made to be one in Christ. We were made in his image and to be living in his likeness. But we sin. Let us weep that we sabotage this great and glorious calling that we have. So, weep because through your sins you have defiled and continue to defile the image of God in you. Just think, God has reflected himself within you as the sun is reflected in a drop of water. You have been made as a kind of God on earth. As it says, I have said, you are God's. And all of you are children of the Most High. That's Psalm 81, verse 6. Now, of course, no Christian believes that we are literally God. But we are his sons and daughters, and we are made to be like gods. He's giving us and will give us rule and power over his new heaven and new earth. And so uh, the Bible has talked about this and... um there's a lot more to go into detail on that, but that's what it's talking about. When we become like him and in his image, we begin ruling like him. We begin taking governance over the earth as he made us to do. Um, so he continues, Yet every day you trample this image into the dirt. You soil it with the passions of life. You soil it by attachment to the world, by unbelief, pride, hatred, envy, immoderation, drunkenness, and other passions. Through all of this, you anger your maker and exasperate his long-suffering. It is fitting and right that you should weep over this day and night. So weep. So that's over our own sins. But then what about the sins of others or the world? We don't just weep over ourselves. We weep over everything that's going on around us because Frankly, we're part of what is going on around us. So he says, um, skipping forward in his sermon, Weep over your sins. Weep over those of other people as well. Weep, because many entire peoples still have not come to know the true God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and are in the darkness of paganism, bowing down to creatures rather than to the Creator. Weep, because the Christian faith is persecuted in faithless countries, and many of the brethren are suffering under their persecutor's yoke. Weep over the falsehood reigning on earth, which makes everyone who wants to live piously in Christ Jesus suffer. Weep over the violations and oppressions of the rich and powerful of this world and over the poverty and the helplessness of the poor. Weep because in many Christian people, love has run dry and in its place reign self-love, voluptuousness, and the indulging of the flesh in every way. Weep because many Christians leap down from the heights of redemption and respect neither the church nor her her teachings, you may say, what use is there in my tears? 
By crying, you will carry out the commandment of the apostle to weep with those who weep. Romans 12, verse 15. And you will fulfill the commandments to love one's neighbor, for love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. That is the use of tears. As a reward for them, you will receive consolation from God and forgiveness of sins. Some powerful exhortations there from John of Kronstadt. So he was a Russian, I believe in the 1800s. Uh, We move also to someone who was around the same time period, Fyodor Dostoevsky and his famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov, which is a fascinating novel. Um, It follows three people, uh, basically um, a sensualist, uh, an atheist, and a priest, or I'm sorry, a monk. Uh, So quite a diversity of characters in this family, and it centers around this this plot, and it it goes a lot into the indulgence of the flesh. And our hero in this story is Alyosha, uh, who is a monk. And the novel really begins by following him as he's a monk in his monastery and the things that he learns from his his leader, his mentor, his his Abba or his father in the monastery. And um, I'm going to read a portion in which he is being counseled by his mentor. And then what ends up happening is he's released from the monastery. His, his mentor tells him to go back into the world because his mentor sees that his family is falling apart. And so Alyosha uh, has to play this role of... Uh, trying to save his family, and um, well, this is this is what uh, he's told um, by his uh, by his um, mentor. So I'm going to read. A, it's about a paragraph of what he says. This is this is his mentor's last words as he's dying. So all the monks in the monastery are are huddled around him. He's giving his last words, and um, Alyosha's there absorbing all of this, and he says. Love God's people, for we are not holier than those in the world, because we have come here and shut ourselves within these walls. But on the contrary, anyone who comes here, by the very fact that he has come, already knows himself to be worse than all those who are in the world, worse than all on earth. And the longer a monk lives within his walls, the more keenly He must be aware of it. For otherwise he had no reason to come here. But when he knows that he is not only worse than all those in the world, but is also guilty before all people, on behalf of all and for all, for all human sins, the world's and each person's, only then will the goal of our unity be achieved. For you must know, my dear ones, that each of us is undoubtedly guilty on behalf of all and for all on earth, not only because of the common guilt of the world, but personally, each one of us, for all the people and for each person on this earth, this knowledge is the crown of the monk's path and of every man's on earth. Only then will our hearts be moved to a love that is infinite, universal, and that knows no satiety. 
can't be satisfied. Then each of us will be able to gain the whole world by love and wash away the world's sins with his tears. Wow. That is really heavy teaching. And what Alyosha's father there is telling him and the rest of the monks is, look, you're here not because you're better than anyone else, but because you've recognized that you are as worse a sinner as anyone. It's like Paul realizing that I am the chief of sinners. And there needs to come a point. This is this is one of the early Beatitudes. Like, we need to come to a point where we mourn our sins and we recognize that it does not matter what my sin looks like to other people's sin because I see what I have done to my God. And I'm in my unique context and I've been given unique grace and unique help and yet I have sinned. I am the chief of sinners because no one has sinned the way I have sinned. And now, if I look at other people and compare myself, then of course I'm going to play that, well, I'm not as bad as that person, or that person's son sinned more than me, or I'm somewhere in the middle of the pack, or whatever. But that's not at all what the Christian's called to do. We look at Christ. And when I look at Christ, I see that no one has sinned the way that I have sinned against him. I have a personal relationship with Christ, and I have personally sinned and worked against him. I have chosen to side with the devil And so these monks realize that they're there because they realize that they are wretched sinners. And so they're focusing their lives on fasting and prayer. But what he goes then further is to say, look, you not only are one of the worst of sinners, but you must also realize, how did he say it, Um, that you are guilty before all people on behalf of all and for all. Now, on one hand, and he acknowledges, this is because I have a sin condition like all of humanity does. So we all share in this, and we are all equally sinners before God. And so we mourn that. That is absolutely true. But he goes as far to say, um, he says, For you must know, my dear ones, that each of us is undoubtedly guilty on behalf of all and for all on earth, not only because of the common guilt of the world, which I was just saying, but personally each one of us, for all people and for each person on this earth. Okay, and then he ends up saying that that is the path to unity, that's the path to love, that's the path to this love that is infinite. It it, it doesn't stop, it has no limits, and it will go and reach everybody. What is it? It's the recognition that I am a sinner, that I am responsible for my deeds, attitudes, thoughts, actions, feelings. I'm also responsible... And here's what's hard for others. I'm guilty for them and before them. Now, I think it's easy to understand that I'm guilty before them because sometimes I have sinned against others and I'm guilty before them. But what about the people that I've never really had engagement with? Am I guilty before them? Well, have I given my life for them? Have I done everything I can to alleviate their suffering? Have I... Or do I basically live a selfish life? Um, And am I guilty on behalf of all? When somebody else murders their neighbor, or hates, or envies, or lusts, am I guilty for that? Now, this obviously can be taken way too literally and way too far. And you say, of course not. Uh, The Bible even says each man will be guilty, held accountable for their own sins. It's absolutely true, right? But... 
the path of humility and the person who actually mourns not only their sins, but the sins of the earth, it hurts them so badly that to see someone else sin feels like they have participated in it. And you get to such such a desire to see that change that you take it personally. And you want to help. You want to get in there and love and share the love of Christ so that you see sin happen less around us. That's what this monk is calling Alyosha to. And that's the challenge in this. Now, of course, I'm reading a novel written by a fallible human. So I'm not at all trying to say, like, this is doctrine and absolute truth. Of course, you can hear this say, that's way too hard, or that doesn't sound right. Uh, but to me, there's an element of truth to this that I think it's worth meditating on and taking a bit seriously and saying, yeah, we need to just, we need to stop burying our heads in the sand. Because that is what Cain did when he killed Abel. And um, God came to Cain and said, where's your brother? And what did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Now, you may never say that, but I definitely hold that attitude. I look around and I say, well, not my problem. Well, that's not my brother. But that's why Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is so profound. He redefines what neighbor is. The uh, scribe came to him and said, like, well, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love Lord God and then love your neighbors yourself. And he said, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? It's everyone around you. We can no longer say, am I... Uh, am I my brother's keeper? Everyone is our brother. Everyone is our neighbor. And yes, we are their keeper. No, we're not their judger. No, we don't enforce legalism on them. But we weep for them. We pray for them. And where we can alleviate sin and suffering in their lives, this is our calling, brothers and sisters. And I, I say this is challenging because it challenges me. Um, and if you're anything like me, then you're definitely feeling challenged by that. So, the uh, the basic concept there is that we are guilty before all and on behalf of all. Okay, um, so that's Fyodor Dostoevsky's uh, The Brothers Karamazov. And finally, we will wrap this up by me sharing with you guys a... A bunch of quotes that I read, and I, I I only wrote down the ones that stuck out the most to me, and I honestly gave up, like, a quarter into all the quotes that I have in a book. Like, I, it was just too much. I didn't have enough time. So this is just a an example. Much Many of these uh, Christians I'll be reading from are very, very old, and um, it's cool to hear their perspective because, again, you and I, we, we live in a, a time where we kind of take sin a little lightly. Um and this reminds us that, look, Christ called us to hate sin. And so, here's what they have to say. Um, some of these names are going to mean anything to you. Um, so, I'm actually going to not name their names. Um, I'm just going to go through these quotes. Pray for the gift of tears, so that through sorrowing, you may tame what is savage in your soul. Pray with tears, and all you ask will be heard, for the Lord rejoices greatly when you pray with tears. When you think that you do not need tears for your sins during prayer, reflect on this. You should always be in God, and yet you are still far from Him. There you will weep with greater feeling. 
Do not grow conceited if you shed tears when you pray, for it is Christ who has touched your eyes and given you spiritual sight. If the soul, through attentiveness, that means like attentiveness on the spiritual life, reduces the blindness caused by love of this world, it will consider its slightest faults to be very grave and will continually shed tears with deep thankfulness. All right, so a comment on that one is that sometimes we don't see our sins for what they are because we're we're deluded and we're blinded and we're distracted by the world and the world values certain things and it has no appreciation for the Beatitudes, especially mourning our sin. So he says, look, if we are attentive to the soul and we are not blinded by the world, we, we keep our focus on Christ, then we will begin to see the gravity of even the slightest of our sins and shedding tears of thankfulness. Let's not forget, brothers and sisters, that this call to mourning our sin is not a woe-is-me, despondency, despair, I'm, I'm, I'm dirt and dust and filth. Yes, that's true, but it's also a mourning of gratitude, the, the tears of thanksgiving and joy that, yet I'm this, he has raised up this dust to be seated with him in the heavenlies. We are resurrected, we are restored, we're redeemed, we're regenerated, we're made new. That's... That's a big part of the tears. It's thankfulness and joy. Uh, the next one. Initiatory joy is one thing. The joy of perfection is another. So think of your joy when you come to Christ and then the joy you grow into as you mature. So then he continues. The first is not exempt from fantasy, while the second has the strength of humility. Between the two joys comes a godly sorrow. And that phrase, a godly sorrow, comes from 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. So, between the two joys comes a godly sorrow and active tears. There are two remedies against pride. If you do not avail yourself of them, you will find yourself given a third far more painful to bear. So, the first is prayer with tears. And second is having no scorn for anyone. These destroy pride. But the third more painful option, if you don't do those, is but so do chastisements inflicted against the will. (laughs) So, you can pray with tears and not scorn anyone and you will destroy pride. Or you can neglect those and just go on about your life and you will find uh, different trials and chastisements destroying pride within you. Uh, Last one. Oh, this is the one I try to cite from memory during the message and, um, well, I more or less kind of hit the idea. So it goes like this. When the ship of sinfulness is overwhelmed by the flood of tears, Evil thoughts will react like people drowning in the waves and trying to grasp hold of something so as to keep afloat. (laughs) And then we have Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
So this is the second beatitude. And remember, it's a ladder. So we begin with poverty of spirit. This recognition that we have nothing all comes from God. We're actually in debt to God. We owe him everything. This is the beginning of humility. The second one, mourning our sin to find comfort means we're not finding comfort in cheap ways. We're not finding comfort from the world or um, from pleasure, uh, things located in the self. We're finding comfort by shedding tears over our sins. And there, there, after being cleansed from such filth, Christ fills us with the true comfort that he gives us. So this is a second step of humility. And the third, uh, this upcoming Sunday, meekness will be the third and final step of humility. So the first three Beatitudes form uh, three aspects of humility, and this is where virtue and the Christian life begin. Then we grow in hungering for righteousness and showing mercy and purity of heart and giving peace, making peace and persecution. So, um... You will see, as we get into meekness this upcoming Sunday, that uh, poverty of spirit and mourning our sin, these lead us to meekness. And I know meekness is confusing to some people. It sounds like weakness. It sounds undesirable. It's often uh, belittled. It's been made fun of, and it's not been given good representation. Well, I aim on Sunday to give it its rightful representation, as we see in Scripture, and as we uh, know from the life of Christ and what we are called to be. So, uh, Christ said that you're blessed when we enter into these ways of living. So, again, mourning your sin is not beating yourself up. It's getting rid of the filth so that we can live in that Edenic thriving. If this does not result in joy... You're letting the enemy do the work in you. So, be blessed as you mourn and find Christ's comfort. He loves you. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you guys the third beatitude. Until then, grace and peace. And may the peace of the Lord our Christ go with you wherever he may send you.